Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue the series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, with a message titled, The Main Thing. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It has been said that the merely good is the mortal enemy of the best. Sometimes the words good enough are among the very worst of all words. Good enough sometimes is the excuse for sloppiness or the lack of excellence or the excuse of the lazy. I wouldn't want to buy a house from a builder who just wanted his work to be good enough. And I don't want to sit under a preacher who doesn't labor with the text throughout the week so that when he arrives in the pulpit, he looks at it as good enough. He'll never be excellent if he does not seek to be excellent. The story is told of a little boy who told his teacher, I'm not an underachiever, you're an over-expector. That sounds funny, but every good teacher knows that they've never done their work until they've made their students, I mean, young boys and girls, to become as good and praiseworthy as they can possibly be. Sometimes the merely good is the mortal enemy of the best. When good enough rules the day, excellence is impossible. What is just as deadly as the merely good is when things that are secondary become the main thing. Now, that's not to say that secondary matters are unimportant. They often are. But when we don't realize that secondary matters are secondary matters, well, what a tragedy. Let me give you an example of that. Imagine a car company that can't decide whether they're making the best possible product or the cheapest possible product. Now, if they don't get that straight, well, I suspect they're not going to accomplish a whole awful lot. I mean, the real question is, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? The same is true when it comes to churches. Think of all the important things that churches do and are. Reaching the lost, growing to become larger, caring for the poor, that's important. Teaching people to love one another, that's important. Having a healthy and vibrant impact on their community and in terms of justice, that's important. Helping people to discover their spiritual gift, that's important finding and maintaining biblical leadership that is led by the Spirit, that's important. Making sure that our budget is healthy and in order, well, that's also important. Doing worship well, that's important. But what's the main thing? You know, having been in pastoral ministry for years, I have a very clear perspective on that matter. But I'm not talking in general terms about the overall mission of the church. We've been speaking about spiritual gifts. And now especially, now that we've come to 1 Corinthians 14, we're dealing with the gift of tongues and prophecy. It seems that those two gifts had become the source of controversy among the church in Corinth. And as we read our text today, we come to realize that the reason for that is that the Corinthian church had allowed tongues and prophecy to become the main thing. And once that happened, I mean, these things, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, were actually bringing harm to the church. Sometimes secondary matters, which are good in themselves, if allowed to become primary matters, well, that creates catastrophe. Well, today I simply want us to study one verse. Let's read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6. It says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. 
What we see here is the activity of the early church, and we also see what they thought to be of the most value. Tongues, indeed all the gifts, from from healing to administration and help, all the gifts, while encouraged, were never the main thing. Please notice that Paul begins by speaking hypothetically. Suppose, he says, Suppose when I came to do my ministry in Corinth, when when I did evangelism and planted the church, suppose I made up my mind that I would come to you speaking in tongues and more, that tongues would be a part of my primary message. What if the gift of tongues was a part of my ministry to you, but more that tongues was a part of my essential message? Well, then what would happen? You know, it's interesting to hear him say that because this contrasts so with what he actually did. I mean, early on in 1 Corinthians, indeed, in chapter 2, he reminded them of his actual strategy. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So please notice here that Paul says that when I first came to you in Corinth, I had a very clear strategy in mind and a clear perspective on that which was vital and that which was not. Corinth was a city that highly valued great speakers, great orators. In Corinth, they they would pack a full auditorium when great speakers came into their city. These speakers often combined Greek philosophy with popular ideas. They could make you laugh at one moment and then cry the next, and then become very serious. In other words, they made use of every imaginable technique to move and wow the crowds, and this kind of activity was as big in Corinth as a hockey game is in Canada. Paul is saying, when I came to Corinth, I had made up my mind exactly how I would begin my ministry. If I came with the skills of a great orator, I know I would have gotten the crowds because this kind of a thing was popular, but I didn't. Indeed, I directly rejected that approach. I made sure that I didn't sound like the great orators of the day. I wanted to make sure that the ways that I communicated wouldn't take anything away from the main thing, which was the gospel or the good news about the cross. I was worried that you'd think great communication rather than the cross was the strength of the church. Wow, he really thought that thing out. He never wanted to get away from the main thing. So does it strike you, simply hearing this, how strange that sounds to our ears? Many of us can't even imagine that conversation. What if we had a very entertaining ministry? What would that emphasize? Would that emphasize the power of entertainment at the cost of the power of the cross? See, I've been to countless church meetings. I have hardly ever heard people raise that concern. But it was a concern for Paul, not because he thought oratory or even entertainment was necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but the merely good is an enemy in this case, not just of the best, but of the only thing. See, whenever we think the cross needs human means to get people to it, we deny our confidence in the power of the cross. Paul saw that with great clarity, and that's why he acted as he did. Now let's go to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. There Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So from the beginning of 1 Corinthians all the way to the end, Paul is always reminding the Corinthians that he never took his eyes off of the cross. It was the main thing. 
Now, in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians, well, we find all the things that happened to this church along the way. So they quarreled over leadership, and they didn't discipline those who were sexually immoral. They allowed lawsuits to happen between believers, and on and on the problems went. And, and now when we get to chapters 12 to 14, we find that they also allowed tongues and prophecy to have the main stage in the church. It was tongues that everyone was talking about. It was this that had captured their imagination. This had become the main thing, and, and Paul saw it in an instant. They had taken their eyes off of the cross. And that's also the reason for so many of our problems today. See, whenever we think of church quarreling over, you know, whether they should build an additional building or whether they should replace the choir with a worship band or whether they should pave their parking lot or whether to allow certain gifts to operate, I mean, all of that comes from a lack of clarity over what is of central importance and what is merely secondary. So when Paul asks, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, he's making a very forceful point. You are not benefited by the gifts unless there is some form of instruction that is geared at building up the body of Christ and proclaiming the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ as the main thing. But what does Paul mean by revelation? And what does he mean by knowledge and then prophecy and then teaching? I mean, all of that needs some explanation. See, Paul is communicating that all the gifts in the world won't benefit the church unless these four categories stand at the center of the church's activities. And so from our perspective, we are well served to study those four terms and to know them well. Sometimes one little verse in our New Testament is such a gem that we're sacrificing far too much if we're just trying to read the passage quickly without ever asking ourselves, wait a minute, what does this little verse mean and how does it affect the overall sense of the text? So we're going to take the time now to look at those four words and explain what Paul means by them. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more. Every once in a while, I've been invited to a worship concert put on by a famous writer of contemporary worship songs. And, And everyone's excited, and in no time, people are deeply engaged. You know, but for my part, I'm always left feeling empty. That's because I can't imagine worship without instruction in the Word. It always feels to me like we're just worshiping an unknown God. But God never designed things that way. 
I'm going to speak more about the dynamic between worship and instruction in a later episode in this series. But when Paul speaks of what the church needs, he mentions four key words. So let's look at each one of them in turn. The first is revelation. We're well served to remember what this might have meant for the Corinthian Christians. Remember that at this time, there was no New Testament. Whatever we make of the word revelation, it must, in the time of the writing of this letter, refer to some addition to the developing New Testament. It is that sense of things that that Paul communicates in Galatians 1, verses 11 to 12. There he says, For would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a, here's the word, revelation of Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of the gospel he preached, he's always speaking about, well, Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead. That's what he preached in Corinth. I mean, that was the gospel. And that was not anything he made up. That came directly from Jesus. And as as far as he was concerned, there was nothing that he would allow to get in the way of that. Of course, the gospel has all manner of implications. When Paul told the Corinthians he spoke only about the cross, he doesn't mean that he never spoke about all manner of other practical things. So, for instance, Paul knew that the cross had a lot to say about how a church would develop and what it would become. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, he advances that idea. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, this was a profound revelation in the New Testament, that the Gentiles had equal access to the gospel, that they were members of the same body, that Christ had made one new man, he says, out of the two, that the wall of hostility dividing Jews and Gentiles had been broken down in Christ. I mean, those revelations had reverberations throughout the church. Listen, all you need to get right with God is to believe that Christ's death on the cross frees you from your sins. Now, if that's the case, well, then there can be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are one family. So circumcision, Jewish dietary laws, cultural distinctions, I mean, all of that didn't matter. In other words, the main thing, the declaration of the cross of Jesus, that thing, or that revelation, had huge ramifications for the way that Paul would put together the church, a church that existed with no regard for race or language or gender or social status. Anyone can find peace with God by trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross. That's the main thing. I mean, what a revelation that was. And says Paul, all the gifts are of no value unless this form of revelation is being brought to God's people. But once this revelation is brought, people could also see that that God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles and that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each. So this kind of revelation, well, that's essential for the church. And here I think we must insist that, that when Paul speaks of revelation, he speaks of a closed canon, that is, this kind of revelation indeed does end when the New Testament ends. The idea of someone having doctrinal revelation after the New Testament is complete is is to argue that the New Testament is not complete. And so we would argue that new revelation was that revelation that was added to our complete Bible. 
I mean, after the Bible's complete, God has finally and ultimately spoken. And so when we talk about revelation today, we're talking about that revelation that's found, well, it's in our Bible. That's how we would apply that word today. So let's go to our next word. Paul speaks next of knowledge. And and here, I think it's appropriate to ask, why does he string together four words? I mean, why? Since since Revelation speaks about the main thing, does he add still three more words? Well, we do know that whenever Paul writes, he chooses every word well and with care. So he doesn't simply string words together for effect. No, no. Each word serves a very real purpose. So what does Paul mean by knowledge? Well, as we look through 1 Corinthians, we'll remember that that one of the problems that this church had was whether or not it was permissible to eat food that was offered to idols. So in answer to that question, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, we know, there's a word knowledge, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And then later on, he would say in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. So what is knowledge? Well, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul wants to help those who are strong, those who have proper knowledge of God and his word, not to hinder the conscience of the person who doesn't yet have proper knowledge. See, the point is that whatever Paul means by knowledge, he means knowledge about what God has revealed. That is, knowledge about the implications of the revelation that come from God. So, revelation refers to the content of the New Testament, and knowledge must refer to an understanding of what the New Testament says and how to apply it to specific situations. Let me tell you how this feels from my perspective. In well over three decades of preaching, I'm sure you understand that quite often, the things that I speak about are the things that people already know about. I mean, they know about the Trinity. They know about the two natures of Christ. They know about his perfect manhood, his humility, his perfect sacrifice. They know about justification by faith. They know about God's providence. They know about angels and demons. They they know about the doctrines of creation, the doctrine of God's election. They know about God's demand for holiness. They know about the doctrines of last things. People know things. Many of the people I preach to have been reading their Bibles for a lifetime, and yet in spite of the fact that they know, they still want me to teach them and preach to them. What am I going to tell them that they don't already know? So let me provide an illustration. Back in the day before we had drywall in our homes, we had something we called plasterboard. After a period of time, the nails that that held the plasterboard in, well, they'd come loose and you could see the nails, they'd, they'd pop out from the wall. And what was needed is to take a hammer and to drive the nails in again. And indeed, that's what I hear from God's people. Drive the nails in again. Reinforce the knowledge. Tell me the promises are still true. Challenge me not to fall into unbelief. Confront me with the truth that I know and encourage me to continue to be faithful in that truth. Warn me against unbelief. Encourage me by showing me again that this truth makes me joyful and faithful. Revelation, the New Testament, that Christ crucified is the centerpiece. Knowledge, the truths from God, from that revelation, made practical to every person. And then third, prophecy. Now here, I think we need to pause and make sure that when we look at these four words, we can see that they make up a whole unit of thought. Now, if that's so, we have to assume that when Paul uses the word prophecy here, he is referring to it in some fashion as belonging to the revelation and the knowledge that he's already talked about. 
Now, from my vantage point, I think I can find an example of that, Acts 15. Luke tells us that after the apostles led the church to understand that the, that the Gentiles were included in the church by faith alone, that, that after that event, Acts 15 verse 32 tells us that two prophets, Judas and Silas, strengthened the brothers with many words. So if I understand that rightly, prophecy is intended to reinforce confidence in the scripture. And so Paul says, you as a church will not be benefited unless you hear revelation, knowledge that reminds you of the revelation, prophecy that reinforces your knowledge, and finally, teaching that further explains the revelation. And that's the centerpiece. Let's now go back to the verse we're discussing. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Put it another way. How can you have a healthy use of tongues if it's not bathed in a careful exposition of Scripture that makes the cross of Jesus the centerpiece and then carefully works out the implications of the cross into every single facet of life? Or how is any Christian activity helpful if you mix up what is central and what is peripheral? It's never good enough to have an exercise of spiritual gifts when you're not being thoroughly instructed over and over again by the Word of God. Celebrate the gifts, yes, but they're never the main thing. Thanks for your message today, John. I I have a bit of a question, I guess. The whole idea of worship and uh, the importance of worship, and we both believe worship is important, But are we missing out on something if we worship, let's say, in respect to music, but never open the Word of God? Yeah, because, you know, I made mention of the fact that we do have, uh, you know, uh, groups coming in and they do a worship set. You know, it's usually uh, somebody who's a very popular uh, worship uh, song uh, writer. And so they come and do this thing together. So I'm not saying, and I want to make it very clear, I'm not saying it's wrong to do this. It's like a sin or something of that nature. I'm not saying that. I do, however, think that there is a pattern in which we ought to place the teaching of the Word as central to what we do. So whenever we heighten the issue of worship, and I'm with you, Ben, worship is so important. I mean, I I don't want to simply teach the Word. I want to celebrate the Word. So yeah, we need to worship. But whenever teaching does not take its central place, like anything else, it gets skewed. And so, you know, people can begin to worship worship. And that, I think, is a problem. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy. Well, the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians Empowered Living Volume 1 available digitally or on CD 
free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.